The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I was noticing particularly tonight that um, I, I don't have the desire to talk at you. Um, so I'm interested in something that might be more of a conversation. But um, I'll be with a bit of an introduction um, <clears throat> just to give you a sense of some of the experiences I've had. So if you have any questions, you can steer them to places I might have experience and shy away from places I don't. Um, <clears throat> I was raised in an academic family in Providence, Rhode Island. My parents taught at Brown University. And my dad, through his explorations and his interests, um, became kind of an intellectual Marxist in the 60s and 70s. And my mother um, was interested in psychology and that turned into interest in neuroscience. <clears throat> and uh, very early on, I would spend many um, summers of my um, youth in the Canadian wilderness canoeing down the lakes and rivers there. And these felt like very disparate things, neuroscience, Marxism, and a love for the wilderness until I came in contact with Buddhism. And <clears throat> I don't think it has to be true for everybody, but the, uh, the social concerns and the understanding of how we are constructed and how we construct our world um, brought in the, the views of Marxism uh, at the time that so much of, our, of, of who we become is a reflection of the society we grew up in, and that there, are <laughs> and there are great instabilities uh, in how we construct ourselves, our world, our houses. Um, and my mother's love of neuroscience that I also took an interest in, um, understanding the the brain, understanding the mind, how we take in sensory input, and um, understanding ourselves from this more elemental. Uh, physical point of view. And then whatever was happening to me up in the woods every summer, um, that was very mystical because neither of my parents had an understanding of the wilderness. They hadn't spent much time up there. Yet as I would spend six weeks uh, very far in the northern um, Canadian wilderness, something would very consistently happen to me out in the woods where my mind would begin to open up and there'd be this beautiful presence, even with uh, heavy darn poor rain or hot days or sleeping on rocky ground. My mind would go through a transformation every summer that would wear off when I came back home and then it would open up again back there and I became very addicted in a way, and positively addicted to um, whatever was happening, whatever would happen out in the wilderness. And there'd be these pristine moments of stillness right around sunset when the wind would die down, the lake would get flat, and you could see the colors of the sunset reflected in the, the glassy still water of the lake. And then maybe a loon would fly by or a duck would fly by and you could hear every beat of its wings. As I went by and I'd be sitting there brushing my teeth and I'd just stop, even as a child, and take in the profundity of this beauty but when I got home, I was like, this is all I want to do. This is so beautiful. But I would get home and I would get um, into school and there'd be homework and there'd be television and friends and chaos in my family. And it was, I couldn't find those moments back home. And it wasn't until I went on my first meditation retreat that I realized uh, 
other people had discovered these things, that I, I wasn't alone in my um, interest in social concerns, social welfare. My <clears throat> intrigue and what it's like to have a biological body and how, it's, how amazing this body is. And then a love for this transcendent stillness that can happen and you get to be radically present. Um, often first found in places like the wilderness, but more and more found when you have an orientation towards it in everyday life. These little windows can open up um, even as you're driving through town. <clears throat> One time I was on the Golden Gate Bridge trying to get three hours north and it was one of the few times that it snowed in the Bay Area and it, was, it caused a car accident up by Sausalito. So I was driving and the traffic got slower and slower and slower until finally it ground to a halt and stopped. I've never stopped in traffic um, like that on the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was holding the wheel getting frustrated and frustrated and back then my cell phone didn't work right in that spot on the bridge and more and more and more and more frustrated until I saw these tourists walking by and they had their coats up because <clears throat> it was a cold day, it just snowed, wind was blowing. And I noticed that a lot of the tourists walking by, um, it occurred to me that they had flown all around the world, from all over the world to come to this spot. And they're on the Golden Gate Bridge, which was one of the things they wanted to see when they were in America. And I was parked in my car right in the center of it, right in front of one of the big spans. And I had the music going, I had the, the heat on, and I went to this place of great frustration to realizing I had a front row seat to one of the most amazing bridges of the world. And the Pacific Ocean was off to one side and San Francisco and Alcatraz and I could see Berkeley off in the distance was over there. And I was comfortable and these other people had flown from so far away and they were freezing walking by. And it's like, thank God I got to stop here. And what a beautiful place to stop and turn off your car and just marvel at this bridge. And that's what the Dharma has opened up for me, is that that type of, of freedom is possible in every moment of life, but it feels sometimes trapped in specific circumstances, like the perfect sunset, or that waking up after a perfect night's sleep, or getting a fire crackling, and then finally, ah, life feels good. But it always, for me, felt so confined to certain circumstances, and I try to repeat those circumstances and I couldn't always get back there, wherever that was. Except for going up to this, this wilderness camp, which I didn't understand because I was colder and hotter than I was back home. I didn't have access to the food I liked back home. There were mosquitoes, there were often uh, people I didn't like so much at this camp, sleeping on the ground, <clears throat> um, getting wet for days on end, in the rain, getting all my stuff wet. Like these are worse conditions but predictably, I end up happier. And then when I go back home where the conditions are much more pleasant in my middle-class lifestyle, I become increasingly, um, it's harder to find that, um, that freedom, that happiness. And so I took the wrong message when I was young that uh, you had to suffer a lot. That if you can increase your suffering, you break free of this sort of bourgeois middle-class uh, malaise from my dad's interpretation. <clears throat> and so I, I kind of picked up this austere lifestyle. And so some of the Buddha's teachings sometimes, monks would take on practices of austerity to sleep in the charnel grounds or um, only eat one meal a day or 
um, not use a cabin to sleep out in the under the, the stars and deal with the ants and the mosquitoes. And that resonated with my sort of, that, that's what I hadn't understood at that time of life. But luckily there's more teachings than that. And the Buddha taught a middle way. Um, so you don't just have to suffer the body to find this type of freedom in heart and mind. It's about being intimate with whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And some of the people who led me in these canoe trips when I was younger they, they had the same amount of happiness no matter what the conditions were. I, I didn't understand them. They were so interesting to me. These people have been leading these canoe trips um, on rainy days, sunny days, warm days, morning, moon, na, noon, and night. They had sort of a subtle smile and happiness and contentment because they loved being there. And they were my first guides into a sense that there was a type of happiness that wasn't based on the conditions that you found yourself in. But it wasn't until I came to my first retreat that I saw that there was a science and an art to cultivating that type of freedom, that type of presence and joy, no matter what the circumstances were. Ajahn uh, Suchito, who's a British monk, um, he talks about a mind that is object dependent on its happiness and a mind that is object free uh, for its happiness. And when I was younger, I was object dependent much more object dependent. So I, I had to have certain circumstances. I had to put my attention in contact with certain experiences for it to be happy. And if it came in contact with other experiences, it would be unhappy or agitated. But <clears throat> this practice of mindfulness is increasing the depth and the breadth of circumstances that you can be intimate with and find that through that intimacy, you can drop resistance and it's the resistance to experience that ends up causing the greatest agitation. In the Buddha's teachings, he gave these four noble truths. And the first noble truth is that uh, often there is some dissatisfaction and agitation in the mind, in the heart and the body. But the cause of that is the struggle we go through around our circumstances, craving for things to be more pleasant and therefore rejecting things that are unpleasant trying to become a type of self that you wish you were and somewhat rejecting the self you find you think you are. That struggle with reality ends up causing the agitation and causing some of the discontent that we face. So out in the wilderness, there was a, there, we, would, we would struggle for the first week and then surrender into conditions as we found them. And it was fun to take little boys on this trip 10-year-old boys and see them when they first came off the plane, their, their band of happiness was very narrow and fragile. And if they didn't have things just right, they would be agitated. And then the first time a, a rainstorm would come through and they'd be miserable. They'd put on their, their cheap rain gear and sit there and just shiver and be absolutely miserable. And then you fast forward that week by week and maybe week four, week five out there for six weeks the weather comes and the rain starts and they're having these raucous conversations and they're having a lot of fun and they don't change, they don't skip a beat, but they start putting on their rain gear and they're just as animated and then the rain passes and they take off one layer and the rain comes back, they put on that layer, rain finally passes, they take it off and they put it away without even thinking about it and starting to see their freedom 
had gone from this tiny little band, you know, things had to be just right for them to be happy, and those circumstances were very small, to where they could take huge, uh, you know, headwinds blowing, and everything's wet and they're cold, but they're laughing, and they're being gregarious uh, in all circumstances. So <clears throat> that's some getting that getting that sense when I was young that became very important to me. And I found that these practices offered through uh, maybe just all spiritual practices end up cultivating something like this, but uh, Buddhism was something that intrigued me very much. Um, it's what's helped me cultivate this. So I started doing intensive meditation retreats about the same time, I guess I'll back up a second, when I went to college, I studied um, molecular biophysics and I was I was very good at it, very interested in it. I was, I was very uh, intellectual, very kind of upstairs intellect to kind of get into the molecular nature of biological material and find the physical properties that would understand that. And so when I graduated, I put that down because I, uh, I was sort of hyper-rational at that time, becoming very Spock-like, <laughs> and started doing social service and worked in a shelter for homeless teenagers living in a small cabin up on the shores of the Puget Sound with a dog, very, very blissful moments, dog at my feet, fire crackling, bread baking in an oven, jazz playing uh, on the public stations up there. They have a good jazz station. And then living on this cabin and then working in this shelter for homeless teenagers and then doing intensive meditation retreats and found the sense of uh, social service and the compassion that could come and seeing that my capacity to be intimate with things just as they were allowed me to do really fantastic social service. So I could be there in the shelter and the police would bang on the door, open up and there's some kid that they found under a bridge or some parent was standing there glaring and some kid looking really shameful and angry and the police was standing between them and had to put the kid in the shelter and then decompress the parents and give them 72 hours to cool off with all that tension and the phones ringing and this, all that tension, I found I could float in the middle of it, kind of like those kids in a rainstorm, because of the mindfulness practice, the ability to feel my breath, let go of all the agitating thoughts, feel into what was happening, and then find some rest and composure, even with all that tension and agitation. A lot of the other staff, the other staff said, um, when you come off retreat, it's good for me too because I walk through the room and I see that you're calm and I realize how uncalm I am and I take a deep breath and shake it off. And so very passively, I'd come off retreat and the, the other staff would relax. The kids coming in would sit down and they would start talking to me and I wouldn't be reactive, I wouldn't be burned out, I wouldn't be judgmental and tired or distracted or manipulative of them. I would just take them in. You know, who are you? what happened. And they would de-escalate very quickly. They would take off their armor, tell me about some favorite aunt they had, and then we'd call up the aunt and we'd find some solution pretty quickly. That happened many times just after retreat. But as I became tired and struggling and I was looking for shortcuts because I was frustrated or I would work really hard with one kid and then they would leave and a new kid would come in and I just didn't have it in me to start fresh. So I would try a little shortcut. I tried to use my work on the last kid with the new kid and it wouldn't work. And I'd get frustrated with the new kid. 
So I would get caught in these, in these mind games, my own mind games, and see that the service I could do was not as profound as what I would do off the retreat. And my uh, co-workers noticed that, and the woman I worked for noticed that. So they became very excited for me to go on retreats. <laughs> and not that they didn't like me after the retreats, luckily, but <clears throat> they also also became con- interested in what was happening on the retreats. And I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand it. So I said, well, I want to go on longer retreats. I really want to study this because I'm, there's something happening here, this great synergy of the, the social welfare and compassion, this deep understanding of what it's like to be embodied in one of these great bodies that we have, these miracle bodies, with a, uh, a cultivation of these heart and mind qualities of uh, tranquility and presence, compassion, uh, wisdom, um, forgiveness, staying fresh day by day. And then that led me down to live in the Bay Area because I wanted to work with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. They had a training at the time, so I did an intensive training with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship called BASE, the Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement. And I I lived in a collective and they gave me um, $300 a month to live on for food and rent and everything in this collective that actually worked due to rent control. And I did that, and after, after working in a very bad shelter where everybody was burned out and aggressive with the kids and seeing the kids fighting back, I realized that um, there is really bad social service out there, well-intended people, but the system was not working well in this one shelter. And I asked my friend Diana Winston at the time, who was working for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, like, what do we do next? You know, here we are in our late 20s, and what do we do next? And she said, well, I'm going to Burma to be a nun. Why don't you come with me? And I said, well, I can't be a nun, but I will go to Burma with you and let's see what happens. And so I went with her to Burma and we went to this one monastery with a very formidable monk named Saida Upandita. And he's he's known for being the warrior, um, hard-ass monk. (laughs) And he was true to his form. I worked with him for six months and then I worked with a different monk in a different monastery who taught how to relax and open and heal the mind through uh, samadhi, which is, if you don't know much about the, the Buddhist architecture, samadhi is how you collect the mind and help it ease out of its uh, agitation before you begin this investigation of the patterns of the mind that cause the, the underlying agitation. So I spent six months learning just to deeply calm my mind, deeply calm my body and heal patterns of resentment and uh, ambition that was um, uh, from dissatisfaction. Anyways, a lot of healing happened in that. Then came back to the States and then um, uh, my health wasn't so good after a year in Burma. And so I had to do a lot of healing on my health. Um, That took a long time to heal. But during that time I began working with prisoners and helping them with their Dharma practice through a correspondence course. And I did a year in the hospice ward. Um, once a week going to a hospice ward as a volunteer so I could uh, evolve my young person's relationship to death. Um, I felt that that was important. And um, began teaching other people how to do social service that didn't lead to burnout. So I became more, uh, rather than doing frontline work myself, I began working for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in trying to help dozens and hundreds of people 
um, learn to stay with their passions of service and activism without getting to that chronic burnout that happens. And then that led to um, assistant teaching and now teaching in the Spirak IMS tradition. And anyways, that's <clears throat> that was kind of a long bio and um, woven into that were some of my uh, my personal discoveries and awakenings. And the thing that I'm most interested in now is how um, certain certain things I've just always thought were true are actually optional. And so that the little earthquake we had just a few minutes ago is a good example of how if you live a long time without an earthquake, you just take the ground as solid and you don't question that. And it basically works. So because it basically works, you stop asking the question. You don't even really assume there is a question there. The ground is solid. Yet living in this area, you know that that's not true. So you even have at least the intellectual understanding that the ground is not always solid. But practically speaking, we're all startled when it, when it rumbles because we just weren't expecting that to happen. And yet, if you live in a place where that's happening a lot, you're less and less startled. I was once living in the mission um, in San Francisco and there's some old Victorian house. We lived on the third floor <clears throat> and the house used to vibrate at weird times and I thought, wow, I'm really, and this house really is picking up the earthquakes. Like I'm, I'm feeling it late at night and you know, middle of the night and um, during the day lying down. And I was like, that wasn't a truck going by. Yeah, it was definitely, the whole house is shaking. And I realized it was um, my landlord on the second floor whenever he did laundry, <laughs> his uh, washing machine, the dryer would make the whole, it had the right resonance frequency, even though I couldn't hear it, to make the whole house suddenly vibrate at it. And I always felt like, wow, there are all these earthquakes and it's really unpredictable and they're gonna happen. But it kind of opened my, my interpretation of the world. Like these, these things are not solid, buildings are not solid, the ground is not solid in San Francisco. And there were, I think, a few true earthquakes in there, but um, a lot of it was his, his dryer. <laughs> but <clears throat> it kept the, um, the understanding that things are not as solid as we think. And so, you know, here is a, a clock, and I, I think this has been here for a while, this clock. It might even be the same clock since I was here last. At least my mind is telling me it's a, roughly the same clock. And so because of that, I get away with thinking this is not changing. I get away with, this is a noun. You know, this is not something in action. This is sort of a static thing. This is, and I get away with it. And yet this is undergoing a lot of processes, this clock. It's aging. And so it, it will never be new again. Slowly through use, this hinge will, one, will soon break at one point. These buttons won't work. The circuitry is going to corrode and break down. Uh, one of the little LED things will one day stop working and you, you'll never see an eight again. It will always be a nine because that one will be missing. So <clears throat> slowly, this is, this is in process. But I get away with, I'm not really intimate with it. If I'm familiar with it, we can take familiarity in two directions. I'm familiar with it and therefore I tune out and basically stop knowing it and don't see that it's in changing process. 
where I could take the same familiarity in, and if I was really intimate with this clock, I would see, yeah, it has a little more uh, grime right there, actually, and there is a scratch right over the uh, the hour. And if I, if I was very intimate, I could actually see this clock in process, which is the invitation in mindfulness practice, is first we just learn how to be intimate with our present moment, which is a huge endeavor unto itself because the mind has habits of being distracted and agitated and worried. And there's a huge relief that comes just when we learn to rest in the present moment and find ourselves more and more able to rest in more and more present moments just as they are. And then skillfully respond as we need to. So you're resting in the present moment while you're driving and you're still steering the wheel. (laughs) So it's not all about rest, you are responding, but responding restfully. Once you get into stabilizing mindfulness, which is that being present in the flow of experience, you can then do what is called vipassana in the Pali word, and insight, which is the English translation, resting intimately in the flow of experience, you can look at the fact that all things are in flux, all things are changing. And the changing process usually is an aging process. So if something is born because it can biologically be born, that that action of uh, reproduction leading to birth, that does cause a birth, but that birth, as it, you follow it forward, tends to lead towards an aging process. And that aging process tends to lead towards a type of falling apart and a type of passing away, this building, our bodies, this clock, our cars, the planet itself is in an aging process. It's cooling down. So first we develop mindfulness to be present and then we start developing insight. And the insight that's important, uh, there are many insights that are fascinating, but the insights that the Buddha thought were important was what processes could we understand better that would help unravel our patterns of suffering, our patterns of agitation and dissatisfaction. So being intimate with experience. One thing that we do, which I just described, is that we tend to take things that are in process, we treat them like they're static and we get away with it. And then we feel betrayed when we can no longer hold that static image and we see that something has changed. So my body has been changing my entire life. If I'm open to that, I won't suffer around that truth. But if I like my 20-year-old body and then work in the gym and do what I can to kind of maintain that 20-year-old body and then it gets away with me and then I just like can't, I just have to face the fact that I I turn 30 and then try to hold that 30-year-old body and then it becomes 40. If I don't like that process, I'm going to suffer, you know, um, you can argue with reality all you want as long as you're willing to be wrong 100% of the time. So go for it. And they say that suffering is the strain between what is and what you prefer. And if you want something, you're so close to getting it, but you can't quite have it, but you really want what you're not having, even though it's not quite it, that's a lot of suffering. But if I want things to be radically different, like I really, I don't know, wish we were all watching a parade, but we're not, 
but I'm not strained over that. It's like, yeah, that's what I want, but this is what's happening. There's no, that's a vastly different preference, but there's no strain connected to that preference. So there's no suffering connected to that presence, that, that preference. And so it's the strain between our preferences and reality that causes us suffering. And so as we learn to attune to the flow of reality and work within the capacities of what's possible, we don't generate a type of um, friction, agitation with the realities we find ourselves in. Like finding myself parked in traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge, thinking I should and wanted to get where I was going was the agitation and reality had me parked on the bridge, letting go of that and enjoying the bridge um, ended the suffering and opened up a great sense of beauty and freedom right in that moment. There was nothing I could do about it. So I might as well align myself with reality as it was, as it was showing me. Anyways, there are, other, there are other liberating truths that can be found, but they're not found intellectually. They're found by becoming more intimate with life as it is. And if you can be more intimate with your body as it is, you can become more intimate with your preferences and then relax around insisting upon them. And if you can become more intimate with your emotional states and mental states as they're arising and passing, you can end the suffering there and then you can end the type of suffering that would come because you would have to be reactive. If I'm angry and I know it, I can do something about it that's productive. If I'm angry and I don't know it, or if I'm angry and I really don't want to be, I'm gonna be angry at you for making me angry, angry at me that I'm angry. And what I'll be doing will be type of react, reaction, agitated reaction when facing the reality I find myself in. And then, uh, because you were mentioning social engagement, um, it was interesting to be working in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, even during the start of um, the Afghanistan and the Iraq war. And I was around people who were in their 60s and 70s who had already gone through this with the Vietnam War. And so they had already felt out a lot of their own patterns of passion for wishing this wasn't happening, but trying to work constructively with what was happening. And I didn't want it to happen, thought I should be trying harder to stop it, trying to, um, and find myself agitated. And, and all I need to do is like, I want it to end, I can't, therefore, why get out of bed? Like, I can't, I can't get out of bed and face this reality. I want to walk outside of my house, I feel useless. And I would swing between this this desperation and this sense of powerlessness and therefore kind of a depression. And it was good to work with mentors who showed me that no, we cannot, there is a reality and it's out of our hands, but we can influence it as much as we can. And you have to be patient, watch out for your own burnout, watch out for your own preferences that lead to frustration and burnout. But apathy isn't the response either. And so how do you have all the passion of understanding that there's suffering in the world and that you can't stop it, but you can respond to it? And how can you respond to it in a sustainable way that meets the truth of your caring 
not diminishing it, but not frying yourself um, by being in contact with suffering, knowing that there may not be a solution. And that's what I was able to find when I was working in the shelter of homeless teenagers through a lot of guidance of my elders at the time, is how to renew myself so I could be of service day by day. And sometimes finding myself slightly a little too cooled off and it, it tasting a bit like apathy and then warming that back up and feeling the freedom of that and then finding myself too warm and boiling over with frustration and burnout. Learning to cool off and then learning to be on that dynamic ride in, uh, in response to social suffering or environmental um, concerns. How to stay intimately connected even when there is uh, suffering and pain in a way where you can pace yourself with that and not fall into apathy or frustration, burnout, and reactivity. So at this point, <clears throat> I'd like to again um, hear from you all any of your own reflections um, or if you have any questions about that, I'd be happy to respond. But just to get a better feel for you all, if we can have a little dialogue, hear your own wisdom or reflections as well. And Smita will run the mic around. Thank you. Um, I don't know, about five or six years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a teacher and I think we were sitting around and and uh, someone asked this question of um, how do you practice the Dharma? You know, how do you put it to practice? This is really simple. She said, every moment. And I thought that really, that really stayed with me in terms of saying um, all these situations that occur, you know, if you can just stop for a moment. I mean, you can't do it all the time. Um, but if you can just stop for a moment, um, it's from um, people getting angry at work, uh, people driving crazy, you know. She said about people driving crazy, she said, maybe late for an appointment, you know, or uh, maybe something happens in the family, you know, you don't, you don't know this. So, um, so it was really interesting to hear her say, you know, that you practice every moment, mm-hmm. Um, there is a whole bunch of bittersweet um, stuff around the fact that I couldn't bring my teenager to your group that was that you ran. Um, just about three days before graduation, one of from high school, one of her closest friends uh, committed suicide. It was like number three among the seven or so happened in a year and a half in Palo Alto. And um, the whole family, um, I mean us, my husband, my daughter, and myself, we were also completely devastated um, because the child came to our house quite often and um, hung around with other other girls. And it took my daughter two and a two years she did. She went to Berkeley. She did very well academically, but we had to like watch her every two weeks. We would go see her, and um, 
I didn't not knowing. I don't know what what I'm saying. I don't know if I have a question or a comment, but um, we would try and make sense of all of this, uh, my daughter and I. And uh, there was so much pain that one sometimes felt that. Um, well, it's here. Maybe it will teach us something. But I remember we were sitting in bed together, and um, I said, you know, there is so much pain. And it's like when I hear, when I think about it, it's like I, I, I feel like saying, there's so much pain. You, we don't ever want pain, to inflict pain on anybody else, that let this be a lesson for us to really live kindly and lightly in the world. But I said, you know, um, that intention might come from something like this, going through grief. But that intention can run away with you, and it is only my practice that allows me to really carry that intention through day to day. Mm. And I would have had the intention whether I, we went through this horrible thing or not. So... Um, I don't know if that was a wise thing to say to her, but because it basically nullified any use her her um, sorrow had out of all that. And uh, funnily, she went to Berkeley. She said, Ma, what are you going to do? Hang around. I had planned to go on a three-month retreat for many years when she went off to college. And I went, on a, went off on a three-month retreat, and of course... More than half the retreat, I just had to deal with that. And I came out and I met my daughter in India, and uh, her face was just flat. She, like, could r- show no emotion. And it just, it was like a dagger in my heart. I said, what did I do going away for three months? My best wish in the world is that she be introduced to the Dharma. Uh, you spoke of Upandita, and uh, just this last summer, my husband, my daughter, and myself, we went to see him. He is an old teacher of mine. I've taken many retreats with him, and he saw her, and something unexpected happened. He was supposed, we were just supposed to like bow. He was already post-lunch going for a walk, and he saw us. He stopped. He came back. He asked for one of the nuns who translates for him come back from her nap post-lunch, and she joined us. And he gave an hour-long discourse to her, mostly, about uh, enlightenment, which I don't think he gives that often. I, had ne- I have never heard of him. I, I heard of it. I only heard that particular discourse on a three-month retreat he had given at IMS. And I tried to tell her, do you have any idea how lucky you are or how special he must have found you to give a discourse on Nibbana? And it came and it went. I guess from all of this, what I'm saying is, um, you know, as a mother, this once she was in, in me and I could have done the meditation for her. Now she is 20 years old, and uh, 
living more and more apart, obviously, as, as it could be. And it's, it's, it's a huge attachment. I just really, really wanting her to not suffer. She does suffer quite a bit still. Kind of melanch- she has a basically somewhat melancholic personality. I don't know if you have anything to say. I had no idea what I was going to say. I guess it just needed to be said. I haven't mm-hmm. ever said this experience that the whole family went through. And I don't think we'll ever overcome it because it still comes and it's very, very um, intense and deep. So thank you all for listening. Yeah. Maybe a few comments. Um, it's uh, <clears throat> it's very scary that our minds have the capacity to be so uh, grief-stricken or uh, confused and in pain for a long enough time that um, someone might take their life. And so um, very sorry for that young girl that that happened. I'm assuming her friend was a girl, but maybe it wasn't, yeah. And then for us to witness that, um, it can be deeply, deeply disturbing and can not necessarily heal in any way that you would forget it. And it can be a source of pain, and a source of the pain can evolve into compassion to hold on to something that monumental and let it transform in your heart to have compassion for her, her family, for you, your daughter, but then universalizing that. Uh, as humans, we're very complex and we can actually get so wrapped up in our own pain and agitation that we can lose perspective and think that that taking life might be a, a, some type of solution, which it doesn't seem to be. But then I noticed that um, in coming to terms with death, however someone passes, it's, it's, it's a hard passage until you sit with it. And suicide might be its own its own case to put aside for a moment because it's, it's, it has its own complexities. But that somebody passes, it awakens us to the fact that we're only here temporarily. And my stepsister died when she was 25 and I was 21. I remember I was in college and um, very stressed about my papers and getting through college and kind of overwhelmed by it. And then when she passed, um, I was just like a higher balloon. I just floated above all the concerns of college. I thought, this is so transient. This is so unimportant. And I walked through the campus, just free. I saw everybody kind of gripped with this panic around school. It's like, I'm taking this stuff way too seriously. It's interesting. I want to learn and grow from it. But... You know, this is the day she didn't get to see, and I get to see it. And it's not about my papers, it's not about the clothes I'm wearing or the friends I have, just being alive, smelling this spring day, is the day she missed. And she that was um, over 20 years ago, and it still is a reflection. I don't, I don't have to work too hard at it. 
Where if I start feeling like, oh, I don't know about my life, or I was like, yeah, but at least I get one. And because I get one, it's usually, you know, there's some reverence that I even get to have a complex life to try to even figure out. And um, so there can be these strange hidden gifts of compassion and wisdom that can grow out of really hard circumstances like a young person dying and um, and suicide has that such a, a sorrow in it that someone was uh, that lost in that moment. So compassion there for that. So we've come to the end of the class. If you had a question or something you wanted to share, I'll stay a few minutes longer, but um, we can bring it to a close. So thank you for coming tonight. really appreciate the questions and the practice together and having a chance to visit your community again. So be well, stay warm, stay dry.